returning as yet to a study on the church. We're leaving that for the moment. But let's see something from this sermon which Christ preached. Matthew 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and so on. (coughs) We'll especially consider in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, Christ's sermon here um, divides itself up, and I don't need to do that. He gives statements here to open his sermon, and each one is glorious in itself. This is often referred to as the Beatitudes. These qualities that he identifies as uh, beautiful and moral attributes that people can possess. These are not natural attributes that he describes in this sermon. When he says that the poor in spirit are blessed, and that the mourn the mourners are blessed, and that the meek are blessed, he is not speaking about those who may appear to us to be poor in spirit, or those who mourn for any reason or those who have a natural personality uh, that they have genetically, which just means they're a bit more gentle than others. I'm sure you know that we all have our constitution in us. We all have different personalities uh, that are arranged in slightly different ways. But none of these are graces in themselves. The whole world has these. And I'm sure you've met many people of other religions and people of no religion at all. And you may have said, quite incorrectly, that person is very humble, or that person is very kind. And there's a way in which we can say that, but we have to be careful as Christians, because the Bible is clear that there are things God gives in common grace to man that makes him behave in a certain way, but Christ isn't speaking about that here. This sermon that he preached is a sermon for his kingdom. 
It's not immediately for the lost. It's, it's not for all of men. It's to be heard by all men, and it certainly will convict all men. But he is teaching his disciples here, who are already in the kingdom, as to what, what marks they can look at to make sure they are in the kingdom and what kind of life they should live. He's not saying in this sermon, come into the kingdom. He is saying you're in the kingdom and this is what it is like. We know that just from the beginning. He says that he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying. So he is focused at least on the 12 here and maybe a larger group of disciples that are there too, and there would have been a crowd there because of how popular Jesus was at this point. There may be thousands of people there, but he's particularly addressing his 12 disciples and maybe a larger uh, group. So this Sermon on the Mount is about kingdom living. For those who are in the kingdom that can see these qualities being born in them by God, and then how they ought to live throughout the rest of the sermon. It's not that Christ never preached to save people. It's just he did that in other places. In Matthew 3, he opens his ministry, or is it Matthew 4? And he opens it with repent and believe the gospel and repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his evangelistic message. And if you read through the gospels, it's wonderful to see him evangelizing people and calling people into the kingdom. But for us tonight, it may be more beneficial to look at him speaking about what is in uh, the kingdom. So these aren't natural traits. They are spiritual graces uh, that God uh, gives to his people. And um, you'll see that he... He, he gives an exposition of the law in this sermon. It's not often thought of that way. The world certainly thinks that this is Jesus' nice teaching and the Old Testament is bad. But he's actually giving a deeper exposition of the law here than we even have in the Old Testament. Sure, God revealed himself in awe and in fear at Mount Sinai, he did display himself in a way that was to make them afraid. And there's no doubt that this is different. He doesn't display himself here in that way. But the essence of the law is the same. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, um, you shall not commit adultery, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, um, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And all of these commandments, covetousness, Jesus gives an exposition of that law in this sermon. And that, um, that the rest of the sermon tells us that these cannot be natural qualities. If someone reads this and says, I think I'm put in spirit, naturally, or those who mourn will be comforted, whether they know Christ or not, or... I think I'm merciful, so I will receive mercy. If the natural man is saying that, Jesus comes to the natural man in the rest of the sermon and says, 
Well, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, if you despise your brother, if you call him raka or fool, uh, you have murdered him. So that's worse than what Moses said. Jesus penetrates deeper. Moses said, don't take another man's wife and be careful with divorce. Jesus says, what you look at is sinful. It's, it's deeper. And you see that as he unfolds God's law from verse 21 onwards, he deepens. He doesn't change it. He doesn't make God's law deeper than it was, but he unfolds it for what it really was the whole time that the Jews at certain points never would have understood. They were commanded, do not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain. So they were careful about how they used God's name. But Jesus tells us it's deeper than that. And he says that when, when they bless certain things in the temple and swear oaths by the gold of the temple and the altar of the temple, and they had debates about if you swear by the altar or swear by the animal on the altar, which one is greater? And Jesus says, you're taking the name of the Lord in vain. You shouldn't be asking these questions. That is the Lord's altar. So Jesus connects it to worship. So taking the Lord's name in vain is not only using the, the word God or the word Christ in a blasphemous way. That's just it on the surface of the water. Every, read our catechism. It tells us what taking the Lord's name in vain is. Um, our attitude to worship, the way we pray, um, making jokes about any attribute or work that God has done. If, if, we make, if we make a light-hearted, irreverent joke about the Exodus, God's law says that that is taking his name in vain. That's sinful. Because the Exodus is not funny. Um, and I often ask myself, questions like that but you, you'll see that's what it does you see Jesus's sermon here doesn't just let us off with um, these initial superficial breaches of commandments he shows us that the problem is far deeper and wider and the ten commandments are actually there's there they cover thousands of bases really now he doesn't do that to leave us in despair but the point I'm making right now is when he uncovers our lust our, our vain use of God's name, our murder, the, the, uh, the way we treat each other, all these things. When he uncovers this, we then can't come to the Beatitudes and say, I am merciful without some serious consideration, or I am pure, or I am poor in spirit, because the rest of the sermon shows that we aren't like that. Those who call their brother Raka are not poor in spirit, and so on, and you can apply the rest uh, yourselves. That is what the sermon is about. It unfolds God's laws wide to show us how awful and all-permeating sin is, and it calls us to follow Christ and to look for these attributes that we are to emulate that come from Christ and the Holy Spirit. They don't come from our natural heart. And as he unfolds it and says that they are poor in spirit who have been saved, who have been born again. He's speaking there about the, the destitute feeling that someone has when they first come to Christ, when they're first shown their sin and their need of a Savior. 
You only come to Christ because you've become destitute in spirit. The word means bankrupt or a beggar that has nothing and that is stinking and that has old clothes on. That's the word there when he says poor. The poor in that day were like that. Destitute, bankrupt, they have nothing. And we only fully embrace the riches of Christ when we realize that we are nothing and have nothing spiritually. We have nothing, therefore we need something. And Christ is the one who fills that need. Blessed are those who mourn, not over death, over sin. Those who have learned that this is not a happy-go-lucky life, that there is a reason to mourn for the way the world is, and there's a reason to mourn what we are. That's what he's getting at. If I don't mourn for what I am, then any claim I have to know I'm a sinner is complete nonsense, unless I am mourning for what I am, unless you're mourning for what you are. Even Jesus lived like that, even though he had no sin. Isaiah tells us he was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. Jesus wasn't walking around buoyant all the time. He was very burdened by what he saw, what he saw in people, the things he saw in his home and in his town and throughout Israel, because he saw it for what it was. And this world is a reason to mourn. Those who come to that point, bankrupt and who mourn, they are in hope of comfort. But those who are self-satisfied and who say, I'm very happy and I don't need God, they in the end won't be comforted. And you can see how they lead each one into another. The one who's poor in spirit and who's mourning will then be meek and they will hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. But he tells us something in verse 8 that's wonderful. He tells us that when these graces come together as a, a wide picture of a Christian, all together, they're all there together, he says that there, is a, there are people who are pure in heart and they shall see God. He tells us that we can see God. But all these things must be there. So it, uh, one Christian isn't humble and poor in spirit and then another Christian um, hungers and thirsts for righteousness and another Christian is a peacemaker. This is a description here of the fruit of the spirit in one Christian heart. Now, they might be at different levels, and they might fight against each other and things like that, but all he's describing one heart here, and he says in verse 8 that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's wonderful. That means God can be seen. I read from Exodus when we opened that Moses saw God. He didn't see him fully because no man can see me and live but he saw something of him, and the Israelites saw his glory on that mountain in fire, so they saw something of him. But Jesus is saying here, as the new Moses, he's on a mountain. Moses stood on a, at the mountain with the Ten Commandments, and the people were condemned. Jesus stands on the mountain here with his, is it eight Beatitudes, nine? He, t- he tells these Beatitudes as a kind of mirror of Moses. And he tells them they can see God. If they have these graces, they can see God. Not with the eye, 
The Israelites saw with the eye. The Israelites sacrificed with the hand. The Israelites tasted with the taste buds. The Israelite uh, priest wore actual linen robes. The Israelites had their sin typologically pardoned with actual blood. We don't do any of that. It's gone up a level. All of these things have fallen away. And when he says here the pure in heart can see God, he's not talking about a visible, light, radiant appearance, but he is saying he can be seen in a higher sense, spiritually. So not the eye of the flesh, but the eye of the soul can see God. It was built to see God. That's why, that is how we were made. That is why we're dissatisfied. We're born into this world in sin, yes. And as we grow up, we're aware something's missing. We were built to be able to commune with and see God. And none of us can see him. And we know that Jesus tells us here there's a way to just put that right. And that man can see God again and see what he needs. And he's saying it's seen spiritually in the spiritual realm with the soul that praises and prays and so on. But he can be seen. One day we will actually see him with a kind of physical eye. But in this life, spiritually, we walk by faith, not by sight. And this is sometimes called the beatific vision. What Christ describes here has ended up being called that. Lots of of the great thinkers that God has blessed the church with, such as Jonathan Edwards, who one of the greatest American theologians who ever lived. He was obsessed with this, and he he called it the beatific vision, a, a, a spiritual sight of the beauty and wonder and glory and light of the Lord. But it's spiritual beauty, it's spiritual light, spiritual wonder and love and joy. But it can be seen. I'm using the word seen because... I don't have another word, but it can be communed with. It can be experienced. They shall see God, he says. A sight of the blessedness and glory of God in Christ, his radiance, his love, his holiness, and his glory. So when he says in that light, the pure in heart shall see God, what does this mean? Well, he says that there is such a thing as the pure in heart. Pure. Um, This means uncontaminated and holy and purified, like metal, like gold that's been separated from dross. Well, that's the first thing I'm bringing before you, the purity that is required to be able to see. Now, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And when we're brought to Christ, there is a washing and a new birth And there is this kind of brand new sense of forgiveness and zeal for the Lord. And there is a kind of purity a new Christian has. And sometimes there are folks that have lived long under Christ and sometimes they wish they could go back and be reconverted because the the change is so stark for some people. They were literally living in horrible sin and there's this drastic change and all their guilt just goes away. And all their desires seem to be pure. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm not going to touch that anymore. I'm not going to go there anymore. I'm not going to have that attitude anymore. 
These are the things I'm going to enjoy now. There is a kind of purity uh, that Jesus tells us about. That he, he told, he told uh, Peter, Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet. And Christ said, I need to wash your feet if you're going to be pure because they get dirty every day. And Peter said, wash all of me. And Jesus says, no, you were bathed. You were bathed. So at the start, we're bathed. There is a kind of washing. But when Jesus says here, blessed are the pure in heart, this is something that goes on. Because even when we're saved and born again, we revert back. There are malfunctions in the heart. We backslide, and the purity and the holiness can wane very severely sometimes. Yet, it is the calling of the Christian to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, as Peter says, and to be holy, for I am holy. Peter quotes the Old Testament law there, be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter's saying exactly what his master said here. His friend John, in the letter we read, said this, I write these things to you that you would not sin. Easy to explain away and find another meaning for. God doesn't think like us. We immediately say that's impossible. God agrees that we will sin every single day. And you can make an argument that in some way we sin every moment. But John says, I write these things to you that you would not sin. Jesus sets the bar that high here as well. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, the reason John says that is because he knows that if he says we all sin, then that encourages sin. It encourages the deceitful part of us to say it's okay because everyone's doing it. And we all sin anyway. Even in in little things, I can allow the little things because nobody's perfect. John doesn't say that. John sets the bar very high. I write these things that you would not sin, but if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. So he gives us the advocate, but the bar is that we should look at sin. And when we look at it, we should say, I am having nothing to do with you. That is the attitude we should have with sin. We shouldn't say, it's going to happen anyway, so I'm going to allow it. And when it does happen, I'm not going to feel so guilty, and I'm not going to make other people feel guilty because we all sin. Now, I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. Someone falls, someone sins. And if it's pointed out, then what is said is this. Well, we're all sinners. Yes, we are all sinners. But that doesn't mean it's okay and it should not dilute the shock we should have at ourselves or others when we see sin. God never has that relaxed attitude to sin, ever. It's always horrific in his sight because it is so opposite to his nature. He hates it. How can we love our Father who has bestowed this love upon us? our lovely father, but our father tells us, I hate sin. How can we have a father like that when he says, I hate sin, and we say, but everyone sins? Do you see, how, do you see the problem? If we're going to be in the image of our father, sin is always 
extremely uh, bad. And the key to dealing with sin in ourselves and others is that when the sin is there, it should be seen for what it really is, and then the advocate should be immediately offered and commended. So the answer isn't to pretend that sin isn't a big deal. The answer is to call a spade a spade. But then Jesus says, if anyone confesses his sins, I will forgive him. You remember Paul dealt with this problem. He portrayed um, Jesus as the great sacrifice that justifies us. And then he says, well, what shall we say to this then? Should we continue sinning that grace may abound? He had so augmented grace and the cross in that letter and made it so wonderful almost when you read Romans he makes grace so wonderful that you could almost think it doesn't matter if I sin because I'm justified and Paul says no and he says what John says shall we continue in sin that grace may abound certainly not for he who has died to sin has crucified the flesh and its passions so when the Lord says here blessed are the pure in heart, he is commanding us and setting before us a wonderful, attractive standard that we would see purity as attractive and beautiful and we would strive to be pure. The pure heart is a pool, a fountain with crystal clear water in it, refreshing and beautiful and calm and at peace, and it flows with life-giving water. Christ's heart is like that, and the purity that he can give to a Christian is like that. Sin contaminates that pool. Sin is like an algae that goes into the pool that is supposed to be pure in heart. And the algae spreads and it multiplies and it takes all the resources and fills the pool and makes it green and unworkable and it blocks all the light from getting in and it maims and covers and dulls all the beauty and it makes the water undrinkable and it pollutes the pool. These are two pictures of our hearts. In innocence, we had a heart like a pool. And in sin, depending on how much of a grip it ever has off us at any given time, our heart, there's water in it. (laughs) But there's all this other stuff in it. And it ruins what ought to be there. And if Jesus says... Blessed are the pure in heart. How can our hearts be pure? Well, secondly, I think in his sermon and in the Bible, he tells us that there are ways to cleanse that pool of our heart when it's filled with those things. And he tells us in this sermon, well, he says it in this verse, the focus is God. He says, the pure in heart. I think when he says pure, he doesn't just mean clean. He means that this heart has one pure desire, and it's on God. And he he says that um, later on in the sermon. Um, 
chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus says this. Chapter 6, 22. The eye which you see with is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now when he says there, your eye is clear, the word there means single. So he says it in the same sermon. If your eye is single, it literally means if you have one eye, one eye, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is not single, your whole body will be full of darkness. So you connect those two together. The pure in heart shall see God. And Jesus tells us your eye must be single if it's going to be full of light. If it's not single, it will be full of darkness. And he, maybe you've figured out already what he means by that. He's saying that the newborn soul, the fallen sinner that's been redeemed, to remain in a position of purity and holiness, they must always be looking at God. Now, there might be other things in the periphery, but their focus must be the Lord in Christ. It must be fixed upon him through his word and all of these things, and it must be the priority. You look at what you desire. You look at what you want. You look at um, what is valuable to you. You look at what you're interested in. You look at what you're going to do. If I was going to go over there and open that door right now, even as I explained that to you, I instinctively wanted to look over there. You look at things, and it matters what we look at in this life, but even more so spiritually, it matters what we look at. We can have it all figured out. I'm elect, I'm justified, I'm sanctified, and now I'm going to do all of these things. And there's no focus on God. There's no focus on a dynamic, living, real, present relationship with God who can be seen and known. And we don't see him because our eye is not fixed. It is not single. It is not focused on that one thing. And he tells us what happens and how easy it is for this Hebrew people, the Jews, how they lost sight. These people woke up every day and said the Shema. These people knew the Psalms back to front. These people said their prayers. These people gave their alms. These people went to the feasts. These people kept themselves ceremonially pure. They did all this stuff. But Jesus, in his mercy, says to them, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. You must fix on one point. You can't have two because you'll be, you'll be pulled and you'll be torn. He will hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You must have one eye on God and not on possessions either. Just before that in verse 19 and 20, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. Moth and rust will just destroy them. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See how the sermon comes into one. Blessed are the pure in heart. Well, he tells us here, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So if your treasure is the wrong thing, your heart will not be pure. If your treasure truly is God, your heart can be pure. Single eye, a single treasure. 
a single uh, master. And from verse 25 onwards, you know these words, so I wouldn't read them through to you. But it's the section where he starts to tell the Jews, don't, don't be worried and anxious and focused on what you will drink where and where you will sleep. And there's a way in which it is wise to have these things provided for. But do not have that as the focus of your life because you'll lose God. You cannot focus on God and mammon. You cannot focus on God and clothes. You can't even focus on God and food. Food must be in your peripheral vision. Your house must be, it must be in your peripheral vision. It should not be the thing. God is the thing. And then the famous words he closes that section of his sermon in, his conclusion to his sermon, seek first, verse 33, the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So how do we become pure? How do we remain pure? We fix on one thing. We exalt Christ without reservation and without competition as the one master over our wife, husband, family, possessions, everything. It must all be subservient, not in a not just in a kind of way, it must be stark. Jesus must be our master and we are his bondservants. And our main service is to him that then will flow out into our other areas. But it must be to him. And you cannot be a Christian and spend a huge amount of time on what to eat, drink, and wear. We easily fall into this. These things are necessary. It's nice to eat good food. It's nice to wear good things. But there's only seven days in a week, and there's only 24 hours in a day. At what point does that become that there can't be a seeing of God because I'm looking at clothes? Or there can't be a seeing of God because we need to have the cupboards full, and it must be done, and it's necessary. But if my cupboards are full and my soul is empty, what use is that? If I have people over for hospitality and they come over and the cupboards are full and the table is set and I have nothing to give them to their soul, then that's useless. You may not think that's useless, but I tell you in the name of God that that is useless. If we have nothing, how can we set plates of food before people and not give them the bread of life. That's what they need. You see how high the standard Jesus gives us is. The eye fixed on God, and on the treasure, and on the master, will give us, it will place our heart where true treasure is, and set our affection on the right treasure. Now, if we want to fix our eye on God, how can we see him through all this? Well, I think there's always two main ways, and the basic ways, and you know them, the word and prayer. That's it. That's it. That is how you see God. Other things can supplement that, but it's the word and prayer. That's the eye through which you see God. The words of Christ and the word of God will purify the heart. The words of Christ, the words of God and prayer 
will take a pool that's filled with algae, a heart that is contaminated and gunked up with algae, and it will pour other things in and wash it all out, and it will become a pristine pool again, a lagoon where God can reveal himself. Jesus says at the very end of the sermon, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. But the point is, Jesus is saying, my words are important here. My words make a difference to you. If you take them in, they have an effect on you. They are not only information. They are to be understood and they are to be loved and embraced and they are to settle down to define your being. What a wonderful thing it would be if my heart was absolutely defined by everything from Genesis to Revelation. If I was completely governed and planted with only the words of God, what a difference that would make in my life. Paul tells us in Ephesians that Christ loved the church like the husband loves the wife and that Christ sanctifies her. He gave himself for her and then he sanctifies her with the washing of water of the word. What understanding Paul had. Love your wives, what a call. But then he tells us what Christ does for the church. He loved her, he paid for her, he died for her, but now he sanctifies her. And what does he sanctify her with? The water of the word. Paul says the word is water. It's a cleansing agent. The word going into the mind that isn't stubborn and resistant, the word going in and taking hold of the mind and heart. God tells you and you and me tonight that it actually washes the heart. It isn't just saying at the end of a prayer, please cleanse me. That wouldn't work. It is good to have the desire to be cleansed and to pray it, but he's given us means, means of grace, streams of grace by which these things happen. And the pool of our heart needs that fresh supply of water constantly. A pool that sits still, you see it. We sometimes go for a walk up near the Home Depot and there's a, it's not a canal, it's like a, an area of water that runs along the, the trail. And it's not moving water. And it just looks dark and filled with sticks and it just, it doesn't look alive. I don't want my heart to be like that. I'd rather see a heart that's rushing like a brook that has fresh fountain water coming into it, a spring, a spring. And the word of God does that. Jesus said to that woman who had had four husbands, that if you believe in me, if you embrace me, then there will be in your heart a spring bursting up into everlasting life. The heart needs running water. And the scripture is running water. These words used by the Holy Spirit within us who dwells there, he uses them to correct all our misunderstandings, to give us things to emulate, to govern our wills and our characters. We can't do that with our own resources and just thinking about it. We need these words constantly coming into us to build up a system within us that is 
based on the word of God and that will govern us and that will purify us. The Psalms say, your word I've hidden in my heart to keep me from offending you. He put it in there and it remained there and it purified many of his actions and his soul. The word, the pure in heart will see God. They can't be pure unless they're sitting like they did on this hill, listening to Jesus. Read the word. Pray before it, pray after it. Rediscover the destroyed art of Christian meditation. Thinking upon the word, putting parts of it together, thinking about its implications for us. The devil doesn't mind that we have Bibles because in the last 200 years he's destroyed Christian contemplation. It can't become part of you if you don't work at it. Every other subject you work hard at, exams, disciplines, things you need to learn at work, parenting, all these things, all these things you need to store up knowledge and habits and behavior. But with the word of God, we seem to think, I'll open it here and I'll open it there and maybe... We need to get into this word and read it. And you read it for a year and you will be a different person at the end of that year. It is a river that will purify that pool of your heart that isn't pure. And prayer. Prayer. Jesus says it in his sermon. You want to see God? You want a pure heart? The word and prayer When you pray, do not be like them, but go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Chapter 6, verse 6. What a wonderful verse. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Jesus gives details. He doesn't say prayer is important. He gives instructions. Go into your room and shut the door. Why does he say shut the door? Because you can't see God when you're constantly distracted. It's impossible. The eyes need to be closed. Yeah, open them now and again. Walk around in your room even while you're praying. If you feel yourself falling asleep when you're on your knees or leaning on your bed, stand up, walk around. But have the door shut Because when you shut that door, you are saying to the world, stay out. And you are saying to God, this is your time, and I'm going to make my eyes single. And you can be found in this place. I'm not going to give you a list of ten things, then run away. I'm going to find you in this place. And what wonderful things Jesus says. The Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. We need to put these things together. He says when the door is shut and you read your verses and you open up your heart for prayer and you begin to seek the eternal, ineffable presence of God, he says the Father sees you. And he says in the Beatitudes that the pure in heart can see God. This is real fellowship. The Father sees in this, into the secret place and when the Father sees us, then maybe we can see the Father 
with the eyes closed. How often Jesus did it. He didn't see appearances of the Father, but he saw the Father. When Jesus gives these instructions, it's because he's been doing this for 30 years. And it, it, it has worked. He know, this is from personal experience. When he, he doesn't bash us and say, shut the door. He had to shut the door. Often he went off, miles away, and no one could find him. When things needed to be done. When people needed healed and Peter was looking for him and Christ hadn't checked with Peter. I'm leaving the house, I'll be back. And Christ just went and they couldn't find Christ. Why? Because you can't see God and you can't die on a cross and you can't give yourself for the sins of the world if you're constantly distracted by people. We need to be among people. Jesus was often among people, but he was a dynamite of power and grace among people because there were times he was not among people. You cannot be a spiritual Christian that sees God if you are constantly distracted by this world. Shut the door. Go into the secret place and your father not your husband, not your friend. How much easier it is to go into a secret place when you know that there is a Father who's willing to meet you. The eternal God is willing to meet you. Just give it that bit of extra time. Enter into the thing. Find him. Have your prayer list. It's right to give petitions. He gives an example of a prayer later, and there's some petitions in it. But it doesn't open that way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Don't go in with the five things that you need, or the family needs, or the church needs, or the nation needs. That's not how you see God. that's, That's how you make a list. You must first go in and grapple with your Bible of who this is and how glorious he is, and he's worth spending an hour on your knees without asking anything. He is worthy to be praised. You are in heaven. You are not capricious. You are a father. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in the state of Pennsylvania. Bring your kingdom There is prayer. Do you see how that will change you and change me? The word of water and the prayer in secret where the Father sees and we may see him. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is a meeting. It is not only petition, Prayer actually changes us, not God. It doesn't change God's mind. Prayer finds God's will and then acquiesces to it. Prayer doesn't change God's mind, it changes our hearts. B.B. Warfield said this, and this is the greatest statement I've ever come across on prayer. Prayer is the adjustment of the heart for the reception of God's grace. 
Prayer is the adjustment of the heart. The heart isn't right when it goes in. There are things wrong. And in interacting with God and his word and addressing God audibly and taking him seriously, it changes the behavior and changes the heart. And it so calibrates the heart and adjusts it, as B.B. Warfield says, that it's then ready to receive grace. It can be changed. It can receive power. It can receive strength and comfort and love, love for God and love for others. All of these things can be received in prayer so that when we come out, we're transformed. We've prayed the thing through with God, and like Moses when he left God's presence and his face shone, our soul should shine when we leave the presence of God. So remember what Warfield said, that it's not about changing God. It's about transforming us. Blessed are the pure in heart. Pure because they've seen God's law. Pure because their sins have been cleansed and they're seeking with a fixed eye the Lord. Pure because the word is a, is a stream that goes into that pool and begins to wash out the algae and it goes downstream and then prayer begins to flow and then you've got a pool that is fresh and vibrant and living and useful. The word and prayer. And then lastly, those who are being purified by these things will see God. We can see him with our souls. We can see him who is invisible. This is hard to explain and describe. So do it. Rather than expect me to explain it. Do these things and then come and tell me what it's like to see God. I'm not trying to be trite, but it is hard to explain what is going on spiritually here. I'm sure um, you can sense things. Sometimes you can sense evil in a room. Or when people are behaving a certain way, though you're looking at the actions, you can kind of sense an atmosphere of evil or an atmosphere of love too. It's kind, it's kind of like that what we're saying about God here. There's nothing visible. You wouldn't hear an audible voice back. You don't need to. I hope I can say that there have been times since I really began to seek God that I had times of prayer where the silence, as we would call it, of God's response was louder than the world and louder than my prayer was. That in praying to him and then being before him in silence, it, it, had, it almost had more of an effect than someone audibly speaking. The soul can detect things and we need to go near God. And when we see God in his word and as we engage him in prayer, he will radiate himself. 
spiritually, as Jonathan Edwards says. His grace and majesty and glory and love and righteousness, they can be sensed. God can reveal them and communicate them and make himself sensed to be beautiful and glorious. Jonathan Edwards experienced that when he was riding on his horse one day and he came aside to pray in a forest and he never forgot that interaction and longed for it again for the rest of his life. God touched him in, a, uh, in an unusually potent way that transformed Edward's view of the whole thing. And it's often seen in revivals. I'm sure you've read some accounts of revivals and people behave so differently. The preaching comes with such force and power and grace. The people are crying out to be saved. People are falling down on their faces because of the sense they have of the judgment and the glory and the, the awful nature of God. People are overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ. And they are moved beyond their natural faculties to sense the presence of Christ and his love. And there are so many examples in church history, and we should read church history. We should read about revivals. We should read people's diaries. We should read books about these things because they happened. And it's all been lost today in the Reformed Church. There's basically none of it in the Reformed Church. There's never tears. There's never wailing. There's never crying out. Um, I shouldn't say never, but you know, you know what I mean. Predominantly, no. Um, take this text, that the pure in heart shall see God, and open it up and meditate upon it, and practice it, and experience it in your own life. And though we experience it in this life, it becomes true when we pass into glory. When we will see God in glory and in the age to come, and what a sight it will be to pass into glory and see him spiritually, to see God enthroned in majesty, in the brilliance of his light, in his everlasting joy, in the radiance of his being and look directly into the source of all light and love and glory and color, the one who created all these things, to look at him, to see his glory surrounding his throne in beautiful spiritual light and the burning spirit of God and the glory of the Son of God, to see the wonder of God and to see the face where all that glory is concentrated in the face of Jesus Christ, person to person, to see his eyes and to hear his speech and to be able to touch him and embrace him and to see his smile and to look into his eyes and understand that he is absolutely pure and he doesn't know what sin is like for himself because he's never been defiled by it and that he is perfect. We walk by faith, not by sight. We see through a glass darkly, but soon we shall see face to face. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he is revealed, 
we shall see him as he is. What a day that will be to see him and to look upon him in his light and perfection and glory and to know that will be ours for all eternity. Do you long for that? He who has this hope, the hope of heaven, he purifies himself even as he is pure. If you have the hope of being pure in heaven, the Bible says you will purify yourself and stay pure and stay away from sin. Do you have that hope? Let me close with a comment. One great preacher, Rutherford, said this. And he suffered a lot in his life and he lived in a cell for the last decade of his life. Our little time of suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. Fix your eye on God. Fix your eye on the eternal thing. Stop playing and living for the tiny superficial mundane things and be a spiritual person that focuses spiritually on God and becomes spiritually pure. For at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great will be your reward in heaven. Let's leave this place and go looking for him. Amen. May God bless our needy souls.